I'm Jason. I'm the pastor of New Hope Church. What a privilege to gather together and worship God together. It's what we do here. We're not here to give you a, a TED Talk on five ways to just improve your life and how you can get, you know, self-help tips. You know, we're here to worship God primarily together as a community. Um, but it's not only in singing. If, you, if, if you're familiar with church culture and church language, there's something that I do that's kind of obnoxious from time to time. Like Dylan was just leading in song. I'll say thank you, Dylan, for leading in song. And if you grew up in a church, you're like, what, why didn't you say lead in worship, right? Um, it's because I believe, my, it's not just semantics, that worship encompasses so much more than singing. But it's typically what we think about when we think about worshiping God. We think about being in a meditative pose or state. We think about lifting our hands. We think about singing. It, it, it could include all of those things, but it's so much more. The times that I enjoy preaching the most is when I feel that I've worshipped God during this time. That I've talked about God from his word in such a way that I was delighting in him as I talked about him. In fact, I actually think that the primary objective of what I do here is to help you worship at the end. Like, the goal of what I'm doing right now is that at the end of this, you would want to worship God and you would want to trust him. So technically, you could say, I'm trying to lead you in worship too. It's ultimately the Holy Spirit that does that. But worship encompasses so much more than singing and so much more than preaching too. We worship beyond Sunday. In fact, anything you do, to, anything you do that leads you to enjoy God and declare his worth is worship. I'm going to say that again. Anything that you do that leads you to enjoy God and declare his worth is worship. So, for example, at 12.15 or whatever, when you decide to go to lunch, and let's say you, you, you get a burger and you take a bite of that burger. And let's say it's a vegan burger for vegans here, right? And you're like, mmm, that is so good. And you could, you could trace that back and say, thank you, God for providing this meal, or thank you, God, for giving people the creativity to make this sauce, right? That enjoyment of that gift turns into praise towards God. As you're walking down the street and you see people all around, or if you see creation in the trees, wherever you see trees or green in the city, like, and that leads you to give thanks to God for his creativity and his provision, that act becomes an act of worship. That's worship, giving thanks to God. When you call on him in the middle of suffering and you realize that it is only his power that can get you through it, that you've, there are many options, but God is the most decisive person in that situation, what are you doing? You're declaring his worth. You're worshiping God in suffering. When you trust in him, and despite all the evidence to the contrary, and you say, no, I trust your character and your goodness, you're declaring his worth. That's worship. When you obey him, when you've got conflicting desires and you decide to stand on God's word and what he says is true because you know he loves you and what he says is truly what's best for you in that act of obedience, that is worship. You're saying, Jesus, you are better. You are wiser. You are good. That act of obedience. You're not lifting hands. You're not singing a song. You're not listening to a sermon. You are worshiping God. Even when you say, I haven't experienced you in a while, but I miss you. Like, it's been a long time since I've spent time with you. It's been a long time since I've enjoyed you or been in your word. I don't even remember the last time I felt that, but I long for that. That longing is worship. It declares his worth. 
It's like when I go away and I ask my wife, hey, did the kids ask, me, ask for me? <laughs> like, and she's like, no, sorry. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I want to be missed, <laughs> right? Because when somebody misses you, what are they doing? They're declaring your worth. So even when you say, God, I miss you, I don't feel you right now, I feel distant for you, but I long for you, even in that absence of what feels like his presence, right? Even in the absence of that, you can't help but worship him. As you can see, all of life can be filled with worship. There's never really a season or your time of your life when you're not doing it. We'll always worship something. The question is, what are we worshiping? There's something in your life that's going to be worthy of your entire life. Something so compelling, so attractive, so irresistible to you that it's going to call you forth so that you may offer your life for that cause, that relationship, that thing, whatever it is. That's worship. And today we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to truly worship God? And how can we do it? What is true worship and how can we do it? Let's look at the first thing. What is true worship? So the, the short passage that Patty read for us in Spanish is from a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And this letter is all about revealing God's saving righteousness, God's righteousness in saving sinners. If God is holy, how can he accept sinners, right? And the entire letter really deals with that. It deals with so much more than that as well. But he talks about how this was done in Jesus Christ and really unpacks it. This church was a multicultural church. You had Jewish people and non-Jewish people. And he says that we all have sinned against God. The Jewish people who've had the law and the non-Jewish people who didn't have the law, everybody has sinned against God. There's nobody who seeks him, no, not one. And as a result, all are cut off from him and deserve his wrath. But this entire letter is about what God has done in Jesus. That he sent Jesus who willingly died for our sins. So that when God accepts sinners like us, he accepts sinners whose sins have already been punished. So he is just in accepting us. He is both just and justifier of the one who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. God raised Jesus from the dead and united Jews and Gentiles, non-Jewish people who believe in him under one family who are represented here in some ways. One people under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So with all of that in mind, how are we to respond? This is what he says in verse 1. Let's read it together again. It's in the back of the bulletin. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. All right, so let's break that down. Let's get some, let's get some interaction here. What do you see in verse 1? Don't jump ahead to verse 2 just yet. What do you see in verse 1? What was that? Encouragement, there's encouragement there. What is true worship? What do you see? Anybody? There are no wrong answers. That's not true. There are wrong answers. <laughs> but <laughs> that's all right. There's a lot of grace here. Don't worry. What is true worship? According to what he says in verse 1 there. 
offering yourself as a living sacrifice? Anything else? Any other words? All right, let's go ahead and break this down. In view of God's mercy. This is not in light of your religious obligation, in light of your duty, in light of God's demands, offer yourself. This is in view of his mercy. This is overflowing from everything he said from Romans 1 through 11. In light of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And he highlights mercy. So the idea is wonder and gratitude. Like if you receive mercy, what will you be feeling in that moment? Thanksgiving to God? Joy? Gratitude? So True worship overflows from having experienced his goodness. True worship overflows from a heart of gratitude and joy and wonder for his mercy. And then what is it? What do we do? We offer not our religious activity. We offer not our gifts, but we offer, I love what he says here, especially for us in the West who tend to intellectualize our faith, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Like you can't, you can't do that with thinking about, without thinking about your whole person. My heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Typically when something is sacrificed, it's, it's like showing that it's like in, in, in cultic practices, it'd be like it's going to die, right? But the imagery here is that you are, you're offering yourself and you're, it's a living sacrifice, which means you continually, it's a continual offering to God. You, it's while you live, your body, your heart, soul, mind, and strength is devoted to God. That's also what's brought out here by the word holy. We tend to think about holy as being like morally pure, and that's, a, that's of course there as we talk about God being holy. He is utterly unique in his, whole, in his moral perfection. But holiness often in the scripture means just set apart. So in the tabernacle and temple, when you have like cups that are holy, it's not talking about the moral quality of the cup. When Moses is at the burning bush and it says this is holy ground, he's not describing the moral quality of the ground. He's saying that this ground is set apart for God. And so when you offer your life as a living sacrifice, it means that your life is set apart for the Lord. Your whole body, heart, soul, mind, and strength is set apart for God in light of his mercy towards you. Every home has a t food taster, a designated food taster, that's me. I know yesterday we had, uh, there was a women's gathering in our, in our home, I wasn't there, it's probably for good reason. If, if Jothi made food, she typically has to tell me, don't touch that, because I go around, I like to taste things, I like to see how things are going as a sacrifice to those who are gonna be there to see if it's good and it's prepared well. But she'll say, don't eat that, why? Because it is set apart, okay? It is not for you. It is for the people who are going to be coming, and it's not time yet, right? She could say it's holy, but that'd be dramatic. But that's the idea. Like, you know what your life is set apart for. He says, this is true and proper worship. True worship is gladly becoming a living sacrifice in light of his grace and mercy towards you. I'm going to say that again. True worship is offering your whole self to God in light of his mercy and grace towards you. 
I find this, there, now there, there are a couple ways that you could think about this. One way would be like, uh, like, it sounds like God is just asking for so much. He just wants everything, right? That's one way to think about it. But I find it to be incredibly encouraging. Like we live in an age where you are, you are as valuable as what you produce. You are as valuable as your gifts, your skills, your experience, your knowledge and expertise. And for those of you who feel like I've got nothing to offer, he wants you. As one commentator said, he's not looking for the gifts that you can offer at the altar. He wants the giver of those gifts. He wants you. For those of you who are really gifted and talented and skilled and knowledgeable and you're an expert in your field, you can feel like you're commodified, like you're only valuable for those things. You're happy you've got those things, but you know that people only love you because of those things. And as a result, maybe you need the encouragement as well. He wants you, not your gifts. I could think of times in my life where I, like, what would I, what would I be worth if I wasn't in ministry? Like, if I can no longer do this anymore, like, what value would I have to anyone? I remember a friend of mine once challenged me. He said, Jason, do you believe God just, if you do nothing at all, like, if you did nothing, that God would delight in you and God would love you? And I said, I don't, I don't know if I, if I would believe that. Because it's so contrary to what we experience. We're only as valuable as what we produce and what we can give or what we can accomplish. And here you have someone, if you're willing to see it in this way, where he wants you. Not because of what you can give, but because in light of his mercy, because he's already given everything. I can't emphasize this enough. This is in response to his love, in response to his generosity, in response to what he gives not because he's lacking anything. C.S. Lewis said this about worship. He, I said earlier that we all worship, right? And, and we are made to worship. There are studies that are done that, that, that show, that they study two groups of people who receive things and they had one keep track of all the things that they have received and to practice gratitude at the end of the day. And what they noticed is that at the end of all of that, the people who practiced gratitude were happier than those who did not, though they had also received things as well. And what that tells you is that there is more joy in giving thanks for things than in just simply receiving things. Like if you can trace that back and give thanks to someone, it's more fulfilling. This just goes to show that we are made to be in this posture of being able to enjoy and give thanks. And this is what Lewis says about how we do this constantly, how we praise. It's a long quote, so just, just, just buckle up, okay? All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless the fear of boring others is brought in to check it. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, flowers, mountains, rare stamps. I had not noticed that just as people spontaneously praise whatever they value, they also urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God is doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. 
what we can't help doing. We delight to praise what we enjoy because praise completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers tell one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Can I say that again? It's not out of compliment that people tell each other that they're beautiful. It's that the delight is incomplete until it's expressed. Our enjoyment overflows into praise. That enjoyment overflows into praise, right? And so true worship is when you enjoy God and His grace and His mercy and love, and that overflows, not just in what you say, but in overflow, it overflows into offering your whole life to Him. It's a natural response to something you find compelling and beautiful, something you find irresistible. So here are some questions for you to consider. Is this how you think of worship? You're already doing it. We're going to see that in a moment here. But is this how you think of worship? Is it in response to mercy? Or is it in hopes of gaining some mercy? Is it in response to his approval? Or is it in, in hopes of having his approval? And is it your body that you offer? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Living sacrifice. Is it your whole self? And is it the overflow of enjoying him? That's true worship. So then how can we do it? Let's continue. So what is true worship? How can we do it? Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So notice right after he says to make your life a living sacrifice, doesn't tell us explicitly this is how you do it, but this is implied. If you're going to give your whole life to God and follow his ways, you're going to have to find it compelling. Like, you're going to have to see that it is, you're going to have to test it and approve it. That's what it says in verse 2, right? You're going to have to see that it's good and pleasing and that what he calls you into, the way that he calls you to live, is perfect, good, and pleasing. But that's not going to happen so long as our minds are conformed to this world and not transformed by the renewing of our minds. Like, you're not going to bring your whole self and give your whole life to God if, you're, if you don't do it in light of his mercy and if you don't do it with a, an understanding of how wise his moral will is for you. So as a result, you're going to have to make sure that you're not conformed into this pattern of this world, but that your thinking is renewed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, you've been discipled your whole life on what the good life is, the meaning of life, what is worth pursuing, what you should worship, and what is worthy of your lives. I've read this quote before you, uh, to you before, but this is from the late American author David Foster Wallace, who's not a Christian, who's an atheist, who ultimately committed suicide. And he writes this about worship, how we all worship something. He says, if you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. 
Worship your own beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, and you'll always feel weak and afraid, and you need, you'll need ever more power to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will always end up feeling stupid, a fraud, on the verge of being found out. And he writes, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are our default settings, the kind of worship you gradually slip into. I don't know if you could identify with any of those things there. You always feel like you're a fraud, got some imposter syndrome, like always on the verge of being found out. You feel like no matter what, you hate the person you see in the mirror, you feel ugly or you, you think you're ugly. Like you've got wealth and, and you've got money, but you feel like it's not enough. It's, I just need a little bit more security, just a little bit more. You've got power and you feel insecure about that power as if it's, it's always at stake. And you don't realize what you're doing, but what he's saying is that the default mode of our heart is to worship something. Now, he wouldn't say we ought to worship God, but he's recognizing something about the human condition, that you are made to worship something. You think something is going to be worthy of your whole life, and you're going to devote heart, soul, mind, and strength to it. And it's never enough. That should sound like you, me, and everyone that you know. But what Paul writes here is that Do not be conformed to this world that seeks to worship in those ways. Do not be conformed into this world that thinks that is the good life, that that is what brings satisfaction, that that's what is worthy of your life and worship, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a saying. I don't know who said it. But all idols, that is all the things that we are tempted to worship, promise more and more while giving less and less. They demand more and more and they give less and less till they eventually get to a point where they demand everything and give you nothing. And if you've ever been addicted to something, you get that. It's no longer the same high. Like you've got, you need, it's like the, the thing that initially gave you that hit of dopamine no longer gives. You need to increase it a bit more. You need ever more of that, that drug or whatever it is to give you that same kind of high. And it's demanding more and more of you. You're sacrificing relationships. You're sacrificing things and other, other important things in your life to get that high. And what is it doing? It's demanding more and more while ultimately offering less and less to a point where it demands everything and it gives you nothing. It's not just addiction. It's, I mean, it's, yeah, it could be approval, right? You need more and more people to love you. People are love you right now in your, in your life, but that's not enough. You need more people to love you. You need more likes on the gram. You need more followers. You need more influence. And whatever used to be the baseline before is no longer the baseline now, and it's never enough. It demands more and more while giving you eventually nothing. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, this passage doesn't explicitly say this, so I'm going to have to pull verses from elsewhere. But here are some of the ways that our minds can be renewed. And and, and the, the scriptures are there. Let's look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. So Paul writes this to Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, And for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. So God has given his word. And even though he's right now, I mean, it doesn't just include the Old Testament, even though that's the scripture that many of them would be thinking about. Peter, uh, another uh, apostle in the New Testament, talks about treating Paul's letters as scripture. So the, what we have in the canon, the Old and the New Testament, is the scriptures, and it's breathed out by God for this purpose, so that it can correct us, it could train us in the ways of God and what is righteous, so that we can be equipped for every good work. Let God's word be a mirror that challenges your thinking. Let God's word be there to correct you, to bring you into righteousness, to help you grow in righteousness. In Hebrews 3, 12 through 13, this is what, uh, not Paul, the writer of Hebrews says to the community there. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Oh, how do we avoid that? He tells us. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what, what do you want to avoid there? I don't want to have an unbelieving heart. I don't want my heart to become cold and hardened. I don't want to be deceived because we could deceive ourselves, right? Like we can, if it's just us, we could deceive ourselves and justify anything that we want to do. But what's a safeguard against that? Exhort each other. You need other people in your life that's going to exhort you. So there's a scripture, there's community, that if you don't want an unbelieving heart, as long as it is called today, encourage one another so that when you do that, your heart will stay tender to God and you won't deceive yourself in walking away from him. So how do we have our minds renewed? We need God's word And we need to experience God's word with other people so that our hearts will stay tender and not deceived by sin. And if if you're not careful, that'll just be just an intellectual thing, right? Like I'm just gathering with people and we just need to talk about the Bible and make sure that we're encouraging each other. That's not all that he says. This is what he writes to the churches in Ephesus in Ephesians 4, 18 through 23. He tells them the way that they ought to not live. And this is what he writes. Yeah, picking it from 18. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self. It's like trying it on, trying on the teachings of Jesus Christ, trying on what you've learned in Christ. It's a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This means, family, that you've got to, the renewing of your minds and the the attitude of your minds is also connected with you intentionally trying to live out the things that you learn. So it's knowing God's word and it's knowing it in community, but it's an intentional desire to say, I'm going to put off the old self, the old patterns of behavior and thinking, and I'm going to actually put on the things that I learn about Jesus and his ways in community. I'm going to live it out. And as you do that, 
our minds are renewed and we begin to see that what he calls us into, his moral will, is good, is pleasing, and it's, it is wise and it's good for us. But there is a correlation in all of this. As we think about not being conformed to the world and we think about being in community and learning his word and living this out and offering our lives, there is a correlation between what you give and the way you and what you believe he has given. Let me say that again, okay? There's a correlation between what you give and the love you believe he has given. It's like what Jesus says. There's a famous passage where um, he goes into the house of, uh, of someone and there's a woman there who has a really bad reputation in town and she comes and she, she just worships Jesus by kissing his feet and, 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 and washing and, and rubbing oil on his feet and she worships him and, and the, the host there looks and says, Jesus, if he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was and he would not allow her to do this. And Jesus makes this statement to him. He says, those who have been forgiven of much love much, but those who have been forgiven of little, little love little. And it's the same idea here. There's a correlation between what you give, how you respond, and what you think you've been forgiven of, or what you think, how much he, you think he's loved you. If you've been loved much by Jesus, then you're going to give everything. But if you think you've been loved little by him, then you may struggle to offer your life as a living sacrifice. So New Hope Church, how has he loved you? He's loved you to death and back. There's so many people in this world who say, I'll love you to death. I'll climb mountains for you. I'll swim oceans for you. And they won't do it. Jesus is the only person who's ever died for you. He's the only person who has died for you knowing the worst about you. I just told somebody this, this week, someone in ministry, you know, God knew you before you ever had, a, ever had a gift, before you were ever in ministry, before you were any of those things that people think you are. You know, God knew you then, and God loved you then, and God wanted that person. Jesus knew the worst about us, not the best about us, but the worst about us. But knowing the worst about us, he still moved towards us, and he gave his life for us, took on our flesh, all of our sin, and died in our place so that we can live. I think if, you, if we are going to offer our lives as a living sacrifice today, it's got to be in light of his mercy. And unlike all the things that we are tempted to worship, money and sex and beauty and power and comfort and security, unlike all those other things that we are tempted to worship, when we offer our lives to God, we are not left with less and less, but more and more of Him. More joy, more satisfaction, more capacity to love others because of how much He has loved us that we just bask in that and rest in that. He doesn't want our gifts. He wants us. So let's offer our lives, our bodies, heart, soul, mind, and strength. In view of his mercy for us in Jesus Christ, let us worship him.